The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. And yes, here we are this year, 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And you know I talk about that on every show and will through July 26th. And by the way, here's my special shout-out to Yoshiko. We love you, Yoshiko Dart. You are a great leader in America for all of us living with disabilities and especially for young people living with disabilities. You know, Justin Dart, his spirit is here with us and will always be with us. So speaking of someone very close to me is our guest today who I cannot begin to tell you how much I like this person. Um, I've known her for many years. She is one of the very first people I ever met that worked in the area of accessibility, the first. Um, and, wow, things have changed, but one thing that hasn't changed is the barriers are still there. And that would be our guest today, the president and CEO of Stein Consulting, Joan Stein. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joyce. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, Joan, how I thought we could get started is why don't you first share with our listeners how you first became involved with the disability community? Well, I began my career um, as a social worker in 1977, last century, and I worked primarily for uh, 13 to 15 years in the field um, of uh, intellectual disability and mental mental health, or in those days it was called mental retardation and mental health. So you can you can see how things have evolved, how language has evolved. That now we refer to individuals with intellectual disabilities and individuals with mental health disabilities. So I was a case manager and ran a specialized foster home program, and then in 1990, and then I went into administration. And in 1990, I uh, switched jobs and went to work for Three Rivers Center for Independent Living, which is a private nonprofit agency located here in Pittsburgh that as a center for independent living, it is an agency by statute that is controlled and, and uh, that is controlled by individuals with disabilities, providing services to individuals with disabilities. And I went to Trickle in 1990 as the Director of Development and Public Relations. So I would say that since 1977, I have been working in the field of disability. Wow, so you've really seen the changes from the beginning? Oh, absolutely. Now. Absolutely. I mean, the, the changes... Uh, post-ADA in terms of uh, treatment and, and legal rights of individuals with disabilities has changed dramatically. And you've been through them. I know that. Well, Joan, you, as you mentioned, work for Trickle, which is an independent living center. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the biggest independent living challenges today? Well, Joyce, the reality is that, as, as you know better than anybody else, you really can't be free without a job. You don't have freedom without a paycheck. And unfortunately, for people with severe disabilities who have been, have been and continue to be shut out of, the, out of the workforce, the ability to live independently is severely hampered. So you've got you've got the situation with the under and unemployment of, of, of individuals with disabilities. That is compounded by the, the real uh, lack of accessible, affordable housing in the community. 
and then that is coupled with the the challenge that someone with a disability has in finding and securing quality um, personal care attendant services because, you know, if you have a severe disability, you literally are dependent upon someone else or other people to perform activities of daily living. It could be something as, as, as um, central to your life as getting you out of bed in the morning or fixing your meals or clothing you, you know, dressing you. So I think of my friends and, and many of my friends, are, uh, we share many friends in common that for them to get ready to go to work in the morning or to go to school or do anything outside of the home, it can take up to three hours for that to happen. You and I have a friend, Jamie, who, from what I understand, he gets up at four, he and his mom get up at four o'clock in the morning so that he can get up and, and, and have breakfast and get showered and get, and get dressed. And he shows up at work every single day, right, Joyce? <laughs> on time, early. Early, early and in inclement weather. Yeah. So, you know, the, the challenges to independent living, and unfortunately, these challenges are systemic because um, the wages that are paid to personal care attendants are really not, not uh, fair market wages. I mean, when we, we hear all the, the, the ruckus about, and rightfully so, of workers in fast food restaurants and so forth not making a living wage, personal care attendants have a significantly more difficult time making a living wage because the way the programs are set up that support personal care attendant services, they can't work full-time jobs. They, they wind up, if, if they have to make a living wage being a personal care attendant, they could wind up working for three or four different people a day to be able to get the hours in because each individual is only allocated a certain number of hours a day for personal care services. So I would say the, the challenge is the challenge is really, you know, the challenge is getting a job. But then, what do you do? What do you do to be able to get to be able to get to work and and live somewhere where uh, you're safe, secure, and can independently maneuver in and out of your home? Yes, and Joan, something you made me extremely aware of um, is nursing homes. Mm-hmm. That people don't realize there are many people with disabilities in nursing homes oh, absolutely. that are young absolutely. or, you know, young, I mean, not everyone is 80, 90 years old. No, no. Um, and I know you know someone, we both know someone uh, in that very situation, and that happens with so many people. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And the travesty and the tragedy of that is that that's where the money goes in the system. So if someone, let's say someone is injured due to accident or illness, and um, they are being, uh, they go into the managed care system through their health care provider or the health insurance provider or the social workers in the hospitals. Unfortunately, because either lack of knowledge of community services or unwillingness, people get, people literally get sent to nursing homes when, in fact, there are community services and community programs available, but the money is there. And the lobbies, the lobbyists are very strong in the nursing care industry. So it is tragic to go into, into a nursing home and see people literally in their 30s and 40s at that now, young. Joan, Joan, I read the other day a story that I could not believe. And it was about this uh, facility where young people, kids, were, were in this nursing home. Um, mm-hmm. And how it seemed to be is that um, the, you know, say someone had a tragic accident, like a 10-year-old, and mm-hmm. the, the mother could not get 24 by 7 uh, care for the right. child, that it would be recommended for this child to go in the nursing home. However, to be in this nursing home, it equated to like $500 a day. I mean, it was an astronomical cost to oh, the of state. Course. So my question, and a question that a lot of the listeners have had, why would the state do that? If the state itself knows this is going to cost our citizens $200,000 a year and would be so much less for our taxpayers, 
if we are, were, in fact, providing care at home, why would they do that? That's been the $64,000 question for as long as I've worked in the, in the industry. It has always been that the money gets channeled to the institutional care rather than the community care. And, and it, it is, it is, high, it is, it's the most unfortunate thing there is. And what it really does, what it really does come down to is who has the strongest voice. The nursing care industry has, has an extremely strong voice. And we saw it in the transition in the mental health system 30 years ago when they were insisting, finally insisting 30 and 20 years ago to close down the large state mental institutions and transition the people into the community. But the problem was the money didn't follow the people. And so when the money didn't follow the people, there wasn't, there wasn't the financial support in the community to provide the, the safety nets for people because when someone lives in an institution, regardless of how severe their disability is, they have become institutionalized in their way of in their way of, of of operating in their thinking and even to the point where they don't know how to take care of themselves because they've never they've never been taught. So unless you have that money follow the person and there have been efforts for twenty, thirty years to to literally have the benefits that are afforded to someone through the Social Security Administration have that money follow the person. And it, and it, hits, it hits a brick wall every year. It is, it's astounding to me, Joyce. It makes no sense. But it, 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 it so happens. So that would have to make you think that what you said is the lobbying has so much power with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know if you're familiar. Well, I know you're familiar with ADAPT. Um, yes. It's an advocacy organization, and, um, you know, the first ADAPT action, the, well, ADAPT was originally created to force um, accessible public transportation, and that's what the acronym stood for, was Americans with Disabilities for Public Transportation. Well, once that got resolved primarily through the passage of the ADA, now what ADAPT works on every, every, every moment is trying to change the health care system, trying to change the nursing care system, and they do you know, actions around the country and, and, and try to educate people on how critical it is for the money to follow the person. And it, they, they continue to get stymied because, this, because the nursing home industry has such strong lobbyists. Well, hey, if you have questions about that and you can't call in, you can email me or you can twit, twit, send me a tweet um, and you have all that information. But if you don't, go to my Facebook, Joyce Bender, or go to Jobs Bender on Twitter or my email, jbender at benderconsult.com or one eight six four seven two five seven eight eight. But right now we're going to break and then we'll be right back with Joan Stein, the CEO and president of Stein Consulting. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Joan. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S., and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. 
One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than three million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show, everyone. We're talking to Joan Stein, the president and CEO of Stein Consulting, and I want to especially thank one of my sponsors of this show, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, for their unwavering commitment to the employment of people with disabilities and to this show for working with me 20 years to make a change in America. That is why I always say, Highmark sets the high mark for other companies to follow. So, Joan, this has been so interesting already, some of the things we're talking about. But one thing I do want to talk about is that I know from knowing you actually so well that architects sometimes don't really understand what accessibility means. And I thought you could share some of those examples and also about when you go to buildings, older buildings, and people will tell me, oh, they don't have to be accessible because they've been grandfathered into the ADA. Right. I right. wonder if you could take a few minutes and explain that to our listeners. Yes, yes. Well, that is probably the single biggest myth in, in, in the ADA. Nobody is grandfathered in under the ADA because it's, it is, first and foremost, a civil rights law. It is not a building code. It is a civil rights law. So what happens is that under the ADA, as of January 26, 1992, last century, almost 25 years ago, any building, whether it was built in the 1700s, the 1800s, or in, in the 1900s, whenever it was built, as of January 26, 1992, those buildings, the owners and, man, and managers of those buildings were obligated to begin the process of what is called readily achievable barrier removal just Congress speak. Basically what it means is that readily achievable barrier removal is to do something that is easily accomplishable without financial hardship. And what that meant is that you should go throughout your building and look at your facility from a critical eye, from the eye of someone with a disability, whether it's a mobility disability, someone who's using a walker or a cane or a wheelchair, from somebody with a visual disability or someone with a hearing disability, and look at what barriers may be easy to remediate or to remove. Some of those are something as simple as if the door is too heavy, to adjust the door closer so that it is not too heavy to open up. Um, issues in bathrooms, you know, installing grab bars in the, in the accessible toilet stall or lowering dispensers so that it's easier for someone in a wheelchair to reach. So those are readily achievable barrier moves. There's some examples of them. And the issue is, I, I always say to people, it's the process of readily achievable barrier removal because it was to start in 1992, and it's an ongoing obligation, and it's an ongoing process, because what may not have been readily achievable for an organization to do in 1992, by 93 or 94, by taking steps or by integrating into their planning process and their budgetary process, they would eventually get to the point where either they were doing renovations or they could, they could remove that bigger barrier. Now, part of the reason why architects and design professionals and building owners have the mistake, under, misunderstand the grandfathering in is that 
when the only time that building code officials become involved in the process is when a design professional, a professional engineer or an architect submits plans for a renovation, an alteration, or new construction, and that those plans have to be approved by local building code officials. So any barrier removal that doesn't involve um, submitting plans for approval which would normally be readily, the readily achievable barrier removal, the building code officials have no knowledge. So very often what I hear from people is, well, I have a building permit or I have an occupancy permit, so why do I have to, you know, they, they checked all that. But the issue is that building code officials don't get involved in readily achievable. So it's not until you do renovations. And when you do renovations or alterations, the bar gets gets raised. You're to make whatever you touch accessible. So if you're changing a bathroom and you're changing fixtures or toilets or, you know, uh, sinks, anything like that, you have to make sure that the changes that you make are accessible and that you must create what's called an accessible path of travel to that renovated area. And the language that the law uses is to the maximum extent feasible. And you and I both know, particularly with our topography here in Pittsburgh, it's not always easy to do, and sometimes it's not possible to do. And this happens very, very often with our entrances um, into buildings in our, in our, in, within the city limits because there's simply not enough space. You could have an entrance into a store that has three or four steps which would require each step is typically anywhere from six to eight inches high. And under the regulations, you must have a foot of ramp for every inch rise. Well, that could be a 24-foot ramp, and nobody has room for a 24-foot ramp. So that's where the creativity comes in. And sometimes design professionals, I work with a lot of them. They're, you know, I, I have great respect for design professionals. But there are times when you have to look at the whole picture and take a holistic approach and say, if we can't modify the front, is there another entrance that we can choose? Now, that's not always ideal, and we all know how, how the fact that this is a civil rights law and it's modeled on the civil rights law, the back door is not preferable. But if that's the only way to be able to get in, or the side entrance, if that's the only way to be able to get in, modify that and provide signage at the front entrance to let people know that they can get in. So the myths are really, you know, that, that they weren't obligated to do anything, and I've had people ask me, I, I give a lot of seminars, and I've had people ask me, well, when do we have to comply? And I say, January 26, 1992. And they said, but when do we have to comply? And I finally say, last century. Because the ADA is a complaint-driven law, which means that anyone with a disability or someone on their behalf can file a complaint and say that your facility is not accessible to and usable by people with disabilities. And in doing that, the, the court will then turn to you and say, the court will or the, the, the Department of Justice will turn to you and say, what have you done to remove your barriers since 1992? And if you don't have a good answer or you don't have some progress to, to demonstrate, you're going to be on, on the end of the, the stick that says you have to remove these barriers. And so, you know, I've been doing this for almost 25 years. And it's unfortunate when people say to me, well, I'm not going to do anything until I have to. And I say to them, that's like putting a sign on your back that says, kick me. Because if you wait for the court to tell you, if you wait for a complaint to come in, and you wait for the Justice Department to tell you, or you wait for the court to tell you, they will tell you what to do. They will tell you how much money you have to spend. And I always tell my clients, never, ever tell them you can't afford it. Because if you do that, you automatically have to open up your books. And they will tell you how long you have to do it. Whereas mm -hmm. if you do it pr proactively, you have the opportunity to, as I say, turn the posse into a parade. Right. So, John, question for you. If you went to a college and they and you go in, everyone goes in uh, for some event they have as part of their curriculum, but it is not accessible, 
And they say, well, we don't have to because this is an old historic building. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Okay. They're wrong. The historic, there are very, it's very limited in what gets accepted under historic designation. And first of all, it has to be on the National Registry of Historic Buildings to first and foremost be, be classified as historic. And really all that relates to, for the most part, is the exterior of the facility. So if, you know, you've got, um, Let's say, well, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, well, let's say Heinz Chapel in the University of Pittsburgh. I believe it's a historic, historically designated, national historically designated um, building. But if there was something that required the facade to be changed and it wasn't consistent with the architecture and aesthetics of the period, then they would look for an alternate to it. But that doesn't mean that you can't build ramps inside, that you can't modify bathrooms and so forth. So them saying we're historic or them saying it's very old, it doesn't cut it. Yeah, and what a mess, huh? It's amazing. What and what if they say, well, but we can't have people with disabilities get in on this one floor. They just can't go on all the floors. Well, it depends on what happens on that one floor. I mean, and this, we find this very often in education, is that if a, 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 public, a public education um, institution like, a, like a, uh, a public school or a public university like the University of Pittsburgh or Penn State University because they receive public funding, they are also obligated to provide, um, to, to comply with the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And they're obligated under the ADA to provide what's called program access. And program access means that you must provide your programs and services to people with disabilities when viewed in their entirety. So if you have, a cl- let's say, a classroom building where one floor has all bio labs, well, you have to have an accessible route to that floor and to those labs because those are what are called classified as specialized classrooms. But if it's a political science class or, you know, a a liberal arts kind of class, then the issue is if a student identifies themselves as needing an accommodation, then that accommodation could be moving that classroom, moving that class to a first-floor classroom if there's, say, no accessible route or no elevator in the building. And we find that a lot in, in a lot of the older, older buildings. Very interesting. Very interesting. Again, Joan is the CEO of Stein Consulting, LLP. Joan... Uh, specializes in the accessibility accommodations area, which we'll be talking about more. Joan, if someone wants to reach you, um, I know at work you're 412-736-7161. Right. But what is your email? My email is jwstein, J-W-S-T-E-I-N, 0731 at gmail.com. One more time. J-W-S-T-E-I-N-0731 at gmail.com. And that's Stein Consulting. Uh, May I say I endorse this company and Joan 100%. Thank you, Joyce. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. 
At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S. and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com if you have a question or comment call in toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now please welcome back the host of disability matters here's joy spender hey welcome back everyone we're talking today to joan stein the president and CEO of Stein Consulting, headquartered right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where, as you all know, my headquarters are located. But like Joan, we both work on a national basis. And while, Joan, I think I've told you this already, but with Section 503 of the Rehab Act, it is amazing when I talk to companies of course, I never had these companies, so many companies calling me, which is so wonderful for people with disabilities. The federal contractors now have an obligation to have affirmative action in the employment of people with disabilities, thanks to people like Tony Quello, Valerie Jarrett, Secretary Perez, and, of course, President Obama. Um, but... I also have found out from all of this, Joan, that there isn't as much knowledge as I thought there was in the area of how to handle accommodations. And why do you think that is, Joan? Well, I'm not surprised by that choice because we've we've had we've had waves of um, of activity. You know, when the ADA was first signed into law in 1990, it became effective for employers. Um, in July of that, in July of the following year, or July, I'm sorry, July of 1992, and in January of 1992 for facilities. So what happened then was people who were large companies who were, you know, on top of things realized, well, we've got, you know, people coming into our buildings, we've got, you know, people coming in to interview for jobs and so forth, we better take a look at our facilities. But then it, it really kind of died down um, because people were afraid then, oh, we're going to have an onslaught of, you know, we're going to have thousands of people applying for jobs. And, of course, the big myth in the employment end, as you well know, is, oh, well, they're not qualified. Well, we're going to have people with visual disabilities showing up to be, you know, bus drivers, and we're going to have people who use wheelchairs showing up to be docents in, in museums. Well, the reality is you use a wheelchair, you can be a docent in a museum. You can be a physician. You can be pretty much anything that, you're, that, that you want to train to be. But the issue is they weren't paying attention to facilities, and by also not paying attention to facilities, they weren't looking at the accommodations that someone would need to be able to perform the essential functions of their job. So you get the person in for the interview, and you get past the interview stage, and if the person with a disability is lucky enough to be able to, to get the job, very often what happens is that they either bring their own accommodations with them through working with other agencies to get the equipment that they need, or they, they struggle and they, they find their own way of doing it. So I'm not surprised that these companies who now realize because of, the, of, the, of, of 503 that they have to do affirmative job recruitment and job placement that 
their backs are back up against the wall again and they say, what do we do? And so often the accommodations, it's not just accommodating, let me, let me, let me put my thoughts sequentially. It's not just accommodating the person sitting at their desk. You have to realize that this person is going to be spending the, the preponderance of their day in the workplace. They need to look at the restrooms. They need to look at, do you provide accessible parking for your employees if you provide parking for your employees? Is there a way to be able to get in the building? Are the elevator, are there elevators to upper floors? Where do your employees eat? You know, and, and so you look at that, but you also have to look at the things that, that, that people very often overlook. What happens when you provide training or you have, you have meetings in conference rooms? When you use telecommunication, you know, all of the things, when you look at any employee's work day, what do they encounter? Who do they encounter? And what ways can either the facility be modified or the job be modified to be able to, to enable the person to perform the essential functions of the job? And the other big myth of that is that everybody believes that it's, high, that it's very expensive to do that. And it's not necessarily so. There's a wonderful organization I know you're very familiar with in the Job Accommodation Network that they, they operate out of West Virginia University down in Morgantown, just south of us here in Pittsburgh. But what they've been doing for the past 30 years or more is working with employers and supervisors and company presidents and, and HR folks to help them to understand ways of being able to accommodate Qualified wow. employees with disabilities. Yeah, you know, it's so true what you said, though. If you have not been hiring people, you, you probably forever just been thinking of basics. Because I must tell you, you know, there are a lot of buildings I go in uh, where their idea of accessible bathroom is not correct. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, once again, do you have an issue with any of this? You want to hire someone that's an expert. Uh, this is something Joan's been doing for 25 years. Yep. This is a for-profit company, uh, Stein Consulting, headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I would highly suggest you get in touch with her. Uh, in your company, Joan, when you do work with uh, companies, what, what do you see as some of their major challenges, and, and what solutions are you providing for them? Well, you know, there, when, I, when I work with companies, I, I get people, I, I help people to understand that there are three dimensions to making an accessible facility. And very often I work with, you know, with architects and engineers and building owners and developers. And so the first is you've got to design it correctly. The second is you have to build it correctly. And the third is you have to maintain it. Because one of the, one of the requirements of the ADA is the maintenance of accessible features. So in any existing building, some of the challenges that I see very, very often that people literally don't see and, and don't understand is the placement of items. And that can be anything from walking into a grocery, grocery or convenience store and seeing pallets. You know, you, you pull into a convenience store, and what do you see out on the sidewalk? They, they designed the sidewalk to be wide enough. They even made a curb cut. But what do you see on the sidewalk? You see pallets of what we call here in Pittsburgh pop or soda and all kinds of displays of things for people to buy, which block the sidewalk. So it was designed correctly, it was constructed correctly, but it's not maintained correctly. The other area that I see it very, very often is in restrooms. You know, people are very germaphobic these days. So what happens is you go, you, you finish using the restroom, you wash your hands, you take, people take a paper towel because they don't want to touch the door handle uh, getting out of the restroom. So what do they do with the paper towel? Well, what the cleaning people have decided is that they put the, the trash can right next to the door before you leave the bathroom. What that does is it blocks the maneuvering space for somebody who uses a wheelchair to be able to get close enough to the handle and pull it open to get out of the bathroom. Hmm. 
Never thought of that one. Yep. So it was designed correctly, it was built correctly, but it's not being maintained correctly. And those those things are, people don't do that to be mean or, or to, to, you know, make it difficult for people. They just don't think. They're only thinking about what their intent is, which is they're tired of picking up the paper towels off the floor. But what they've done is they've literally trapped somebody in the bathroom who uses a wheelchair, who then has to wait for somebody to get there to open the door for them. Yeah, now what happens, Jen, while we're talking about this, you know how for people... Uh, without disabilities, how when you go into the restroom, there's a place to hang your bag or your purse or right, whatever it right, is. But, right. but often when you go into restrooms for someone with uh, a disability, it's either this is sky high mm-hmm, or, you know, some place where the person could not reach it. What about that? Well, the, the requirement, requirement for coat hooks in a stall or even in a restroom is nothing can be higher than four feet off the floor. Nothing at all. So that's, that's, uh, that's a paper towel dispenser. That's a soap dispenser. That's a coat hook in the stall. That's a, you know, uh, anything, anything like that. Anything that's called a dispenser can't be, high, can't be mounted any higher than 48 inches or four feet off the floor which is within the reach range. Now, when I say no higher, it can be lower than that, but it can't be any higher than that. Okay. But you're right. Well, well you're right. so you here's the... my question then. Okay. You go so, uh, even to a, a restaurant, a modern restaurant, you mm-hmm. walk in, and what if you cannot reach across to wash your hands? Then they're in violation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't believe how many places do this. Well, I, I know. can see why you're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of work <laughs> here, Joe, with companies, because you know what a lot of companies think? I have a ramp. I have Braille. Yeah, they, it's so much more. It's more than ramps and Braille. Yeah, right. I right. should write a book. It's more than ramps and Braille. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. I like that saying. Well, I'll be, I'll be uh, quoting you, Joan. Joan Stein, more than ramps and rails. Yep, yep. Well, uh, listen, Joan, you do tremendous work. You're known for your work with the U.S. Open, which is so prestigious that you do that. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. That's my, you know, Joyce, and you know me well enough to know that it's my opportunity to mix my two passions. I have a passion for golf and I have a passion for accessibility. So this is my ninth year working with the United States Golf Association, which is the agent, the organization that sponsors the U.S. Men's Open. And Wait a minute. How many years? This is my ninth year with them. Wow. Yep. Yep. What a great record. Oh, yes. Um, I'm very, I, I started with them at, at Oakmont when we were there in 2007, and next year the U.S. Open will be back at Oakmont, and I will be celebrating my 10th anniversary with the USGA back at Oakmont. And that's something. Yes, wow. it's awesome. They are a wonderful, wonderful organization, and I'll tell you why. They do it because they want to do it, because it's the right thing to do, and it's the smart thing to do, and they go above and beyond what the requirements are, and they spend the money to do it. You know, it's the only, it's the only professional sports event that goes to the extent of doing what they do, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. I work with them throughout the year. I work with the operations department. And what they do is they literally build a city on a golf course for 50,000 people a day. Now, this year, we will be at Chambers Bay, which is located in a, a little town called University Place, Washington. It's, on the Puget, it's, on, it's located on Puget Sound. And the golf course is absolutely magnificent. The views are breathtaking. And so what, uh, and it's the first time that the U.S. Open is going to be held in the Pacific Northwest in the history of the USGA. So the local people are very, very excited about it. It's a very challenging course because there's a 176-foot elevation difference between the clubhouse and the course. So it's very, very hilly, and there are a lot of dunes that look like you can step on them, and when you step on them, you, you sink in. So our, our paths are going to be very restricted. Now, what we do is we make sure that whatever we build, 
and you can tell I say we. I very much feel a part of the USGA family because I've been working with them so closely. We make sure that everything that we build is accessible to people with disabilities. This year, we're having the single largest uh, merchandise tent in the history of the USGA. It's 41,000 square feet. It's almost an acre in diameter. And we have the counters are at the right height for wheelchair users. Our dressing rooms have benches and grab bars and mirrors at the right height. Um, All of our our restroom facilities have accessible um, restrooms. All of our corporate tents are accessible. All of our concession stands, everything that we build is accessible to people with disabilities. We um, have ADA grandstand viewing, and what that means is that at holes 5, 13, and 18, we have ADA grandstand that people sitting in wheelchairs in the front row have an unobstructed view to the green. So on June 21st, Sunday, June 21st, when the winner sinks his final putt, people in wheelchairs will have an unobstructed view to that action. Nobody's standing in front of them, nobody's standing around them, unobstructed view. We also have ADA grandstand seating at the practice range so that you can go and watch. We provide on-course transportation in six passenger golf carts that we transport not only people with disabilities but also seniors who have a hard time getting around. We also have what I call our limo carts, which are we have three extended length um, golf carts that... We took that the middle seat is taken out of it, and it has a ramp, so you can drive your wheelchair directly up onto the golf cart and be transported to holes and corporate tents and so forth. And last but certainly not least, through a cooperative agreement with Pride Mobility, USGA is offering 160 motorized scooters to people free of charge on a first-come, first-served basis. And I emphasize free of charge because other golf outings, other golf tournaments do provide the scooters, but they charge a rental fee. We do it free of charge. So whether it's somebody who just had knee surgery or somebody has a medical condition or a wheelchair user comes and says, you know, I can transfer into the scooter, I want to use the scooter, we give those scooters out and give the people a map and say, here's where you can go and here's where we don't want you to go because we don't want you tipping over. Um, because 99% of the people who take our scooters have never driven one before, and they don't realize that they don't have brakes. So it's a little scary for me. I'm I'm having lots of signs made that say no scooters, because it's very scary for me to visualize somebody going down a very steep hill and not being able to stop the scooter. But our entire intention with all of these efforts is to provide an opportunity for spectators with disabilities and seniors to have as good or better an experience um, at the Open. And how that happens is I have, I just did a training. I just got back from, from the golf course, just got back from Washington day before yesterday. I just trained 145 volunteers on my Disabled Access Committee who make this happen because the entire U.S. Open is, is possible because we have 5,500 volunteers that come from all over the country and from 17, uh, that come from all of the United States as well as 17 countries to volunteer their time and pay their own expenses so they can be part of the U.S. Open. How many? 5,500 volunteers. Wow. I, have 100, I have 145 volunteers on my committee alone. Wow, isn't that something? Yep. That is so awesome. That that is that is so awesome. Well, Joan, wow, you do so much, I'll tell you. It is awesome all of these it's, things you do. And once again, how do people get in touch with you, Joan? They can call me at four one two seven three six seven one six one or they can email me at J W S T E I N zero seven three one at gmail.com. Okay. And also, you will be doing this, but you forgot, I forgot actually to bring up something else. What about um, PNC Park? Oh, yes. Yes, my, my, well, PNC Park and Console Energy Center. I yes. was on, uh, I was on the design team for both venues, and in addition to ensuring that they were designed and constructed, to be accessible to people with disabilities. I also trained their staff on customer service. 
So, you know, at Consol, there, and, and at P, you know, at PNC Park, what's, what's funny is that you can walk into the ballpark and you can't see necessarily where the accessible seats are because they're everywhere. And and if you want to apply for a job at PNC Park, you can anywhere because everything in the back of the house is accessible as well. Oh, I know. It's wonderful. And the Penguins did a phenomenal job on console. And it is, there's no bad seat. There's no bad seat to console. Oh, no. I mean, they're both wonderful. They are. Yes, they are. They're, They're my prides and joy. Well, and you should. I compliment you. I Thank really you. do. I compliment they you. They were great organizations to work with. They had the right attitude. Well, Joan, look what you've been doing for 25 years. Wow, yep. you've done so much. 25 um, years. 25 years, but, and I just salute you for all the great things you've done well, for thank people you, Joyce. with disabilities. But what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? What's my greatest accomplishment? I, I, I just, well, I'll tell you what my greatest, uh, where, I, where I get my greatest joy from is I get phone calls and emails periodically from people who say, I heard you give a presentation 10 years ago, and now we're doing something, and, and I told people, no, we have to ask Joan Stein what to do. So it's kind of like, I feel kind of like a teacher feels when their students come back years later and say, you had an impact on me. When, I, when, when somebody comes to me and tells me something that I said in a presentation or in a speech or that I wrote in a magazine, and it gets in, and it changes not just their attitude, but what they do, that's my greatest accomplishment. Well, that is certainly a great thing. Wonderful thing. So, Joan, what message do you want to leave with our listeners today? I want to leave your listeners with the message that 25 years is just the start. 25 years is just the start. We have more to do. Yes, we do. Said Joan Stein, the CEO and president of Stein Consulting. Joan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Joyce. It's been a pleasure. Okay, and you know we have to end every show with a quote from someone that has impacted so many lives in our area of disability. And that quote today is also right here from Pittsburgh from Dr. Kate Seelman, who said, people with disabilities have become actors in their own play. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you all next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.